This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Nina is off this week, so it's just me and Helen. Nina is in Poland. So maybe when Nina gets back, we'll get to hear about what Poland is like. Today, we're doing The Rum Diary. Yes, we really are. It's true. (laughs) And I'm going to start. The Rum Diary came out in 2011. It stars Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. In fact, they met while filming it. The Rum Diary brought them together, and in doing so, it condemned them to the suffering they still endure. Depp plays an alcoholic journalist who comes to Puerto Rico to work for a failing newspaper in the 1960s. It's not just him. Most of the people who work for the newspaper are alcoholics. The fellow who edits the newspaper is committed to making the newspaper profitable, so he never allows anyone to write anything negative. Unable to write about any of the terrible things they see, the writers just keep drinking. It's not very well done. The dialogue is heavy-handed, and the themes are too obvious. I'm as American as the next fella, and I have a certain warm fondness for blunt straightforwardness in art, but even I found it all rather too much. Too much of the film is dialogue for this much of it to be this ham-fisted. Nobody sounds human. The film also takes a strikingly uncritical attitude to drug use. Depp's character never pays any real price for his alcoholism. Eventually, he takes LSD, and the LSD moves him to write an expose about a corrupt businessman. The corrupt businessman happens to be engaged to Amber Heard. By exposing the businessman, Depp can be a good journalist and eliminate a romantic rival. But when he tries to print the story, the paper has been closed and the press has been seized. So instead, he goes to New York with Amber Heard, where he becomes a successful journalist and they all live happily ever after. Really, that's, that's how it ends. The film is based on a novel by Hunter S. Thompson. The novel was written in the 60s, but left unpublished until 1998. Thompson wrote it when he was just 22. Perhaps that's why so much of the political commentary in this film is so infantile. In an interview with Charlie Rose, Thompson said he published the novel in part because he needed the money. He also famously said, I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity to anyone, but they've always worked for me. Thompson committed suicide in 2005 at the age of 67. Johnny Depp was friends with Thompson. He starred in Terry Gilliam's adaptation of Thompson's novel, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, in 1998. That film bombed both critically and commercially, but just two years later, Depp signed on for The Rum Diary. The film promptly went into development hell. After getting passed around a few times, it started filming in 2009. Scarlett Johansson and Kira Knightley were both reportedly considered as possible co-stars for Depp, but ultimately Amber Heard was chosen. A fateful choice. Depp was sober when filming began, but because he was playing an alcoholic, he gave up his sobriety. He left his wife the following year in 2012 for Heard. They married in 2015. During this period, Depp starred in many flops like The Lone Ranger and Mordecai. In 2017, they got divorced, but in 2018, Heard accused Depp of domestic violence. He had a role in the Fantastic Beasts franchise, but was replaced by Mads Mikkelsen. Disney has cut ties with him, ending any further possibility of a return to Pirates of the Caribbean. It's gotten pretty grim for him, though I did enjoy him in Waiting for the Barbarians. It's another heavy-handed film, but next to Rum Diary, it might as well be Shakespeare. So, Rum Diary introduced Johnny Depp to Amber Heard and reintroduced Johnny Depp to alcohol. Johnny Depp was only in Rum Diary because he was mates with Hunter S. Thompson. Thompson's career was built directly around the hippie movement. He spent the 60s doing drugs and writing about people who do drugs. His characters have few saving graces apart from their nominal fondness for left-wing causes. During the 70s, Thompson's career slowed down as he spent more time drinking and less time writing. In his prime, Thompson likely knew The Rum Diary was rubbish. He published it nearly 40 years later because by this point, all he could publish were anthologies of short stories, articles, and letters. Alcoholism buried Thompson's career. It buried Thompson. Then it buried Depp's marriage. And right now it's burying the Me Too movement on YouTube. It's funny how things work out, isn't it? And yet in this novel Thompson wrote at 22, it's all there. You have a bunch of middle-aged journalists. They're alcoholics. They write, even though they're alcoholics. They get away with it because Thompson hopes to get away with it. 
In real life, he doesn't. In real life, alcoholism doesn't work for anyone. But Depp played a character written by a man who thought alcoholism was just a lifestyle choice. It ruined his life. It's still ruining his life. This was the great delusion of the hippie movement, wasn't it? You could break all the rules and somehow it would all be fine. It would turn out that there was never any point to the rules. The older generation made them all up out of whole cloth. All you had to do was call their bluff on everything. Freedom was there for the taking, if you were cool enough to take it. This is what happens when you think of every act in isolation. Once in high school, I had a very stupid thought. Drunk driving shouldn't be illegal. It should only be illegal to kill people with your car. After all, most of the time when people drive drunk, they don't kill anybody. It only happens in the minority of cases. So what if drunk driving statistically correlates with fatal accidents? That's like a statistic, man. It's not real. Most of the time when people drive drunk, they get home all right. The thing is, this is what emboldens them. They got away with it once, so they keep going. They drive drunk over and over again, and they drive drunker and drunker. That's why you have to put the fear of the law into them. If not for the law, people would just do it over and over. Eventually, their numbers come up. Hunter S. Thompson was able to drink through some of his novels, so he assumed he could do it forever, and he wrote about writers who lived their lives in their cups. Poor Johnny Depp was taken along for the ride. Some friend Hunter S. Thompson turned out to be. There is a scene in the original Pirates of the Caribbean movie from 2003 where Kira Knightley burns all the rum. Johnny Depp wakes up and discovers what she's done. No, not good. Stop, not good. What are you doing? You burned all the food, the shade, the rum, he exclaims. Yes, the rum is gone, she says. Why is the rum gone, he asks. One, because it is a vile drink that turns even the most respectable men into complete scoundrels. Two, that signal is over a thousand feet high. The entire Royal Navy is out looking for me. Do you think there is even the slightest chance they won't see it? She replies, but why is the rum gone? He asks again. Jack Sparrow can't understand why the rum is gone, even when he's told why. Neither could Hunter S. Thompson. And now his ashes have been shot out of a cannon, and Johnny Depp is stuck in the mother of all courtrooms. You just have to stop thinking about everything in terms of bits and bobs. Yes, you'll get away with drinking rum today. You may get away with driving home drunk, too. But every moment is connected to every other moment, and what we do echoes through eternity. Treat acts in isolation from one another, and any act can seem reasonable enough. Treat people in isolation from one another, and all their preferences and desires appear perfectly harmless. It's only once we introduce the possibility of unifying abstractions that we can take relationships seriously. Hunter S. Thompson had a wife, but he killed himself anyway. Johnny Depp had two children with Vanessa Paradis, but he left her for Amber Heard all the same. When we think too much in terms of isolated moments, we become disembedded. Hunter S. Thompson could never stand being bored, but you can only be bored if you have nothing to do, and you can only have nothing to do if there's no one in your life whose day matters to you. Yeah. Now. This was Helen's pick. Fascinating. Yes, so. So I picked this rather arbitrarily because I wanted to pick a film about uh, that contained Johnny Depp so that we could just obviously pivot and talk about the greatest um, drama to be released in the last 10 years, uh, the, the court case. I have to say, I have been completely... Um, my, I've been spoiled <laughs> because now, the other day I was sitting, you know, I was looking at something to, to watch for the evening. Nothing on Netflix, nothing on Amazon Prime, nothing on BBC iPlayer because I got a taste from, for content that's actually good. <laughs> so but going through the filmography of um, Johnny Depp, it's interesting. There aren't very many good films. The two that I enjoy, have enjoyed, um, Chocolat and uh, Finding Neverland, which are quite, you know, Finding Neverland is a very, um, it's a tearjerker, right? But they're both children's films, essentially. I mean, Chocolat, I think, is actually a very good film, but this was the one, the infamous one, where he met um, the lady with whom he is having a massively uh, broadcast dispute currently. The film itself is shockingly bad. I'd never watched it. It is terrible. I couldn't finish it. So I watched like half an hour and then looked at the, at the Wikipedia entry because it was that bad. I, I got through Twilight. I did not get through this. To say it's infantile is an understatement. 
Um, as you said, Benjamin, that the um, the hippie Thompson has uh, characters in his works who are nominally left wing. But this is, I mean, I know this is potentially a reflection of a of, uh, of an inebriated, an new, e- I can't even speak, maybe I'm inebriated myself, 22-year-old. Um, uh, so, but, but it, the, it, it's, there's a huge amount of um, a representation of concrete thinking in this piece. And concrete thinking is the thinking of the child. And concrete thinking uh, leads to terrible decision making. And concrete thinking, I think, is representative of the kind of um, non-abstractive, magical thinking clunkiness that happens philosophically in right-wing discourse, which is to overgeneralize. So, and left-wing thinking, if we think psychoanalytically, dialectically, is to expose the, is to, well, to allow us psychically to get off the opium, the technology to help us get off the opium so that we can see the chains and with discernment, take off the chains and pick up, pick the living flower. I think somebody commented last week about um, how isn't psychoanalysis, it doesn't take into consideration enough things like, you know, material circumstance, biology, blah di da di da and that it is part of mystification. But I would absolutely argue that this is not the case. It is the technology that is required to get humans off the teat of mystification because we can't deal with reality. <laughs> and fantasy helps us, is, is a really generative force, and we must revolve around, um, we must ride fantasy, fantasy must not ride us. And um, this kind of bollocks logic, like, he has this epiphany on LSD and it turns out to be the right and ethical thing is part of this concrete thinking, this magical thinking, which occasionally, sometimes LSD and experiences like this can give you purchase or a different perspective or release. But to have this ideological kind of um, patina of this mystical essence-like experience, that is mystification. And the mystification, whether it appears to be inclusive of factors like, oh, but we're talking about materialism, are you really? Oh, but we're talking about left-wing ideas, are you really? It doesn't matter the aesthetics. The technology of things like psychoanalysis, and I would argue dialectical thinking slash left-wing ideas, the emergence of whatever that dynamic of thought is at different epochs is reflective of that epoch and is often completely different. So that which we might get caught up in as left-wing today is often the precise opposite. It's just greater mystification. That which helps us get to the stage of not needing the opium gets us to be able to see the chains, discern the dynamics of the chains, unpick the chains and pick the living flower. So this sort of um, idea that the artiste is this drunken mess, and I think it's interesting. I mean, I love Johnny Depp, so what can I say? <laughs> but this sort of like um, performance of uh, messiness, um, and I think this film is sort of like a reification of that kind of like crazy drunk person who's uh, above the fray because they're like drunk man is is completely ideological and like just rubbish. <laughs> and I think that um, this, we were talking just before you recorded about how um, we can borrow aesthetics from the past to mystify the present precisely in a way to defend against discerning the present. And I think this reliving of Hunter's Johnson <laughs> or this, you know, this, um, glorification of dynamics within the 60s as truthful misses the dynamics that led to those movements within the 60s in their context and mystifies the dynamics of today. I also really liked what you were saying about, and this is precisely a left-wing point, we don't know where we're going. We don't know, you know, the Owl of Minerva, something that Marx, like, minutely forgets at a very small period in the Communist Manifesto and then the rest is history. We don't know where we're going. One moment can change the universe forever or our universe forever or will have changed it only with the perspective of a 20 years hindsight. 
So this moment is very pivotal that he, you know, Amber Heard signs onto this film and Johnny Depp takes this film. And this has consequences down the, down the ages. But where discernment and, um, you know, a, an approach through dialectical reason to understand the dynamics of subjectivity, to understand how we try to fill lack that is generative of everything in the universe and of our own divided subjectivity, we try to fill that up with, you know, things like ideology. We can break the chain with this adult dialectical approach. We go to analysis at the point where the fetish covering over the lack is worse than confronting the lack. And we relive the same dynamic over and over again. We can consciously choose. This is why psychoanalysis is so important. Consciousness raising is bollocks. The same dynamic emerges in a completely different aesthetic unless we operate at this level, which is beyond reason. But we require dialectical reason to tackle this irrational part and to make it work for us. And this is not some like um, transcendent promise. This is just to live reasonably in the world, in the here and now, you know, with other people, knowing that we know nothing. And it is interesting just in terms of the replaying. Obviously, there's a huge replaying of history in the courtroom. Um, this is a court case that has already um, taken one version has taken place a couple of years ago in London. But what is interesting is how closely, certainly from Amber Heard's testimony, her characterization of herself and Johnny in the relationship is so similar to these characters in the film. And uh, that's a whole different story. And we can maybe get onto that. But what I wanted to end with was um, how interesting it is to watch a, a case in real time. And this is not the only case. There are these cases that cases happen all day, every day, court cases. But there are a few, you know, once in a while that really capture the imagination and really the various reasons related to the culture um, speak to our condition. There was one last year and it was very interesting to see in this live YouTube stream of that case what the reality was of that case, not in terms of the reality as in this is really what happened and this guy was right and this guy was wrong, but just the two dynamics being presented versus how it was reported. So in this case that I'm referring to, you had even conservative, quote unquote, papers miss, um, and this is on a court case that had gone on for, for I don't know, certainly weeks at least, misreporting on the race of the people involved on the very day of the verdict. And with this um, court case uh, happening now, it is astonishing to see what I would all call these, you know, the, the liberal press. So anything from, you know, the Guardian to the Telegraph, right? They're all basically the fucking same at this point. How ideologically and how far from reality these things are reported. And you have millions of people watching live every day who are seeing something that is not the same as the, obviously it's done in a sort of like X person says, blah, da, 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 da. But it's, you know, an aspect of what's being reported on, a dynamic that is um, suggested as true rather than it being actually just a pre presentation of somebody who is defending themselves. And it is astonishing to see how far from reality it is. You're borrowing the aesthetics of reasonableness, of civility, of this is the way things are done. But sometimes being reasonable is the least reasonable thing to do. Sometimes equanimity is not equanimity. And you hear a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't really know about this, but I'm sure X, Y, and Z. But sometimes, you know, this is where grown-up discernment and ideology critique is so important and a critique of the dynamics where we try to shield our gaze from reality, from the dialectical contradictory nature of reality. And we have a sort of hangover, I think, post-Me Too, of still the warm, fuzzy ideological feeling is that you know, A equals A, this is the way things are. 
men are this way, women are this way. And I think this is uh, an example of the contradiction of ideology biting. And people are very satisfied with it. I always say that ideology is that offers this warm, fuzzy feeling. Got to be careful. You know, like, watch out for the warm, fuzzy feeling. But the truly satisfying is truth. There's a different feeling. Associated. I think there's different affect with both of them. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. I think that the people who are writing about this trial, who work for those newspapers, uh, they have no career interest in trying to find out what's actually going on. If you try to find out what's actually going on, you might develop a more complicated view of it. And then you might feel some kind of ethical duty to include that in your reporting. And that would be bad for your career, bad with your relationship with your editor. Uh, it's not in the interest of the people who work for the mainstream press to consider the possibility that the case may be complex. Uh, you know, leaving aside you know, the possibility that Johnny Depp may be right, that it's a hoax. Uh, even just the possibility that Amber Heard in any way contributed to what happened uh, is, or that it was uh, something which came out of their relationship dynamic rather than one person being a bad person or one sex or one gender being bad. It's not in anybody's material interest to consider that. And so the reporting avoids discussing a lot of the details which are discussed on YouTube. And when the press does this, in many ways, it's counterproductive for the cause that they are ostensibly trying to defend here, because if it appears that progressives will not acknowledge reality and social conservatives on YouTube will, then that creates a credibility problem for those newspapers. But the newspapers are not thinking in terms of their long-term interests. The way these decisions are being made is individual journalists individual columnists and writers who are contributing pieces for these newspapers are thinking about their personal careers. And while it is not in the interest of the credibility of their newspapers to discuss the case in a superficial way, it is in the interest of the individual journalists to do that because they cannot see any reason why they would benefit from being the ones who are seen to be pushing for this discussion. It's assumed that if you're pushing for a complex discussion, it must be because you harbor conservative views, you want to defend or make excuses for abuse, you are potentially a dangerous person to your colleagues. Uh, it's bad for your career to be associated with any of that. And therefore, uh, you, you have a deep personal interest in not at all engaging with this. Uh, I also, uh, as, you were, as you were talking, I, I thought, you know, Johnny Depp, and as he's aged, he's tended to pick worse films for himself. And I think this is in part because Johnny Depp shares with Hunter S. Thompson this kind of uh, black and white thinking and this kind of uh, tendency to simplify. And the dialogue in a lot of the films that Johnny Depp has chosen to do in middle age has this kind of ham-fisted quality to it to varying degrees. And I think many of Johnny Depp's films occurred when he was younger, when he was less established, when he was being given scripts rather than choosing them. Because I think he's a phenomenal actor and I think he has done, uh, he has been very good in many, in many films and he has uh, done a great job with some roles. And I think there are some really excellent Johnny Depp films. I think that there are some Johnny Depp films that are better than I think, uh, Helen. Which, which, like, because I, I honestly, there's so much, there's just, it kind of pales. So, in my so like, the two that everybody brings up from mm -hmm. his early career that you didn't mention, uh, and I want to know if you've seen mm -hmm. them, are uh, Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, I mean, when I was about six, so I can't really remember. And it. What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah, again, I saw those in, when I was a small child, so I, <laughs> I can't really. Okay. No, that, that, I already know. Good, yeah. Probably be I already know what I'm doing next week. Okay. It's going to be What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah. We're going to do that because you haven't seen it in okay. a long time. And I think that's a good movie. Uh, Edward Scissorhands, you know, is, is more stylized. But I think What's Eating Gilbert Grape is a good movie. So we'll, we'll do that next time and we'll see what Nina thinks of it. Um, but, you know, as, as I was thinking about this, I'm going, you know, 
is everybody in Hunter S. Thompson's orbit a little bit given to this way of thinking? Because to be like a real admirer of Hunter S. Thompson, mm-hmm. to not just be you know, someone who has you know engaged with it, but who really admires Hunter S. Thompson to the point where uh, maybe you'd go to his funeral, right? You have to be someone who really has a lot of patience for a style and for a way of engaging with politics that is a little bit naive. So... On the Wikipedia article for Hunter S. Thompson, there is a little section on his funeral. As it turns out, it was a $3 million funeral because, of course, they had to shoot his ashes out of a cannon. I, I meant that literally. It really happened. They shot Hunter S. Thompson's ashes out of a cannon. And that funeral was paid for by Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp put up $3 million of his own money to shoot Hunter S. Thompson's ashes out of a cannon. Now, who came to witness this? Who liked Hunter S. Thompson enough to witness it? So, 280 people intend- attended. It included John Kerry, George McGovern, who famously ran for president in 1972, uh, Charlie Rose, Jack Nicholson, John Cusack, Bill Murray, Benicio del Toro. Sean Penn. This is a list of people, many of whom have done very saccharine films, especially I think about John Nick, uh, Jack Nicholson's romantic comedies from the 2000s. Oh, but like the Nancy Myers ones. I like Nancy Myers films. <laughs> but like it's something sort of give and stuff like that. Yeah, these, these intensely yeah. saccharine films. That have to have this incredibly over-the-top happy ending that Jack Nicholson liked to do toward the end of his career. When he he could do literally anything or nothing at all, people would let him do anything in the world. And all he could come up with to do were these intensely ideological saccharine rom-coms. I mean, rom-coms are ideology par excellence. And it's funny, they are the kind of films that you want to watch when you're not feeling well. And you're feeling a bit depressed, you get your box of chocolates and your tissues and you think like, oh, great, the world's going to be great again. It's p- they, are, they are pure ideology. You know, they really are pure ideology. I mean, like, obviously, the rom-com comes from um, the Pride of Prejudice <laughs> as, uh, like a, as, as the source of that kind of form of story. And at least that novel had some level of, you know, social insight and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I mean, it was complex enough. But yeah, the the happily ever after bagging Mr. Right is pure ideology. Right. And I think Jack Nicholson, like Johnny Depp, most of his best films are earlier in his career. Mm -hmm. As he becomes more established and starts picking films, we discover he has a taste that is a little bit blunt. And I, I'm, I'm kind of going through that list and going, is this, is this common in the Hunter S. Thompson fandom, is being just a little bit too straightforward? It's interesting because I do sometimes think that um, the artist figure who, whose main, you know, thing to say is in the pose, as in like, uh, as, as a sort of like a personal aesthetic is very i always question it right and it's it's you kind of want it to be true you know you see somebody who's a sort of great artist and you think like i've got to be like that or you know you've got to you've got to look the look away and talk the talk and like win people over with your whatever and it's just it's just all rubbish and it tends to stand in for something lacking when it's that extreme when it's sort of an emergent of something genuinely interesting to say but, you know okay the other thing i find really funny by the way is Okay. <laughs> um, you see among, you know, when you, just in terms of appearance, you see people that like dress in this jaunty way where it's like, oh, this person's an artist. Right? And we have like a, a haircut. I always say somebody has a haircut in place of a personality. I mean, we all have a haircut in place of a personality in a way. Like our haircuts are a bit like our dogs that always like just are us or look like us. But you tend to see people who really, and it's funny, like when you're like maybe working in the arts, you kind of get a bit like, um, what's the word? Intimidated by these people who look so, so much like the definition of somebody in the arts that you're like, well, maybe I'm not, 
artistic enough if they're like look like that. But the people who look most like the the jaunty hairstyles, the like slightly cut off trousers and the sort of bags and the like wonky wacky earrings and massive plastic rings and stuff tend to be people working in arts related jobs that aren't actually artists. I've noticed. <laughs> so you see this this is like total generalization, but I'm just saying that you, you go to a film festival and it's more the festival goers and the people organizing the festival that dress like this than the filmmakers. Just saying. Um, I don't think that's just, that's like a silly physiognomic, uh, like, I don't know if it's even a physiognomic thing, but it's like, I just think that sometimes when you have that much, like, feels like Johnny Depp, like, and I do, I kind of like that look. I think we talked about it the other day. I kind of like that look. What can I say? On a guy. But, but there is a sort of like, I'm an artist, man, you know? And it's well, it's it's specific. It's more specific than that. Johnny Depp doesn't dress like the actor Johnny Depp. He dresses like he's a rock star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Johnny Depp wanted to be a musician originally really? and pivoted to acting. Yeah, he had, he started off as a musician and he pivoted to acting at the encouragement of Nicolas Cage. Really? Yes. So he dresses like he got famous for the thing he originally wanted to be famous for, which was music. Yeah, I mean, I guess musicians, some musicians have a have a look. That's true. The rock star look is just much more gender fluid than the, the movie star look. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I always say, I kind of think, and maybe this is a genuine thing, but it's like, and also uh, something I admire a lot about Johnny Depp is kind of his, um, his, He's the opposite of a spendthrift, right? He seems very generous. He, like, patronizes people. He gives people free stuff. He spends a lot of money. He gave, spent $3 million on Huntress. And in a way, it's like, if you have the money, that is an ethical thing to do, just, like, to not be a miser and to just, in the battalion sense, like, sacrifice it. Um, so I admire it a lot. But there is a, a sort of, like, a messiness that I don't know if it was ever uh, a like, um, uh, what would you call it, a cultivated messiness that maybe caught up with his private life. But, yeah. Well, it's, it's really captured in Pirates of the Caribbean, this messiness that we associate with Johnny Depp. And it's never really been clear whether that messiness is in Johnny mm-hmm. Depp or is our perception of Johnny Depp. And Pirates of the Caribbean made it impossible to extricate these things. And I, if there's any actor I believe has become his characters, it's Johnny Depp. In in the case of the Rum Diary, he literally takes back up alcohol. Yeah, it's very after strange. having given it up to get into character. It's very very strange. And then and then the sort of the character in the film falls in love with this woman, and um, they go off into the sunset, and then he pursues Amber a year later. You know. But and he's a total alcoholic, but it's fine. It makes no difference. It's all a success anyway in the film. Yeah, no, no, totally. it has no impact. He can have what was one hundred and thirteen mini bottles from his hotel bar in like three days and still go to work and absolutely insane. Um, but I was going to say about like the what makes it. A- when Hunter S. Thompson was asked about what he depicts in this novel, by the way, he just said this is what the sixties was like. Right. Maybe it's what it was like for him. <laughs> But I don't even think in Mad Men they drink that no, much. No, no, they drink sort of like a couple of whiskeys sometimes. Um, but the thing is, in court cases, in terms of drama, it is amazing. You have the the two perspectives, you know, coming. You know, two, you have a truth, a theme, and two conflictual perspectives battling it out. You have the jeopardy of these. Just 12 random people who us bearing witness through YouTube, um, you know, we don't know what that is sort of the, the like the anonymous voice of God that, you know, we don't know which way they're going to go. You have. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazingly um, captivating. You have these characters, these funny characters. Um, it's and it's it's a huge stakes. Right? <laughs> I mean, like and the thing that's very sad is that this will ruin either either one of these people, whichever way it goes. Yeah. 
Because in our culture, it has to. It's become a referendum on the whole society. This is how the culture war works. It takes moments and it treats them as referendums on, on everything. And therefore, they have to go one way or the other. They're reduced to this binary because they've become totemic. And these trials, especially in the United States, you know, there was a trial in Britain, but it, it didn't get this kind of attention. I don't think it was filmed. It was filmed. filmed, no. Yeah. I don't think in Britain they would film no. it. That would be, why would you film a trial? I remember at the start of this going, why would they, why, why did the judge agree to film it in the first place? It's up to the discretion of the court in this jurisdiction mm -hmm. uh, and, and for this type of, of court case. Is it's it up to I the mean, court whether or not cameras are allowed and in what way. It presumably is a, a benefit to the judge if they do a good job. She seems very, in, I, she seems great. <laughs> very uh, uh, kind of like um, school mistressy. But kind of the person who's really benefited from the cameras is Johnny yeah, well, Depp, I mean, he, because he, otherwise he, we would only have yeah. the media coverage of the case, yeah, of and we wouldn't have all this YouTube stuff. I mean, he's the one who obviously requested an Amber Heard, I, I hear, uh, did not want cameras, understandably. But the other court case was uh, a defamation case against the Sun, which um, I, it seems like UK defamation law is very, very tricky. Uh, usually, UK libel law is uh, easier. Is it? To yeah, than than British than American uh -huh. libel law, generally. Right. Uh, for I I don't know really what happened in that case, other than I know that that the uh, court really uh, ruled for Amber and argued that uh, I think the judgment argued that most of Amber's claims of abuse were proven to a civil standard, uh, and therefore because they were proven to a civil standard, that was sufficient, uh, even though there wasn't proof to a criminal mm -hmm. law standard. And there was a lot uh, of stuff sale. that was not allowed to be part of the UK case that has been allowed to be part of the US case as well, mm. apparently. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, the thing is, it's, um, if you take a look at, say, Twitter, it is 99.9% at least. And I, I say this without exaggerating. I mean, you'll see if you scroll through, you know, like the hashtag, you will see maybe if you scroll for half an hour through the comments, through the tweets, you might get three or four that are pro Amber Heard. It is extraordinarily skewed one way, which I don't know if that means that people just on the face of it, uh, watching these live streams, because I mean, Johnny's Depp, up to now, we've had like one week of Amber Heard testimony, but, um, you know, the Johnny Depp case was, was heard first, or whether that speaks to the fact that people are yearning for um, the, the sort of bevy to break on the um, repressed contradictions of Me Too, because there are contradictions in everything. And I, people might be desperate for moments within the culture that re-complicate things. Um, it could just- Anytime Twitter and YouTube agree on anything, it's a moment. I, I was initially determined to not pay attention to this. Uh, and I think Nina, who is not here, was also initially determined not to pay attention to it. It has a way of getting you eventually, though. Because if you're young, you're on YouTube. I'm on YouTube. I go on YouTube to listen to music. I go on YouTube to have stuff in the background. I go on YouTube if I just need to chill out for a defined period of time. Right? Lots of us go on YouTube. If you go on YouTube, they feed you this case, whether you click on it or not until a clip comes up that you can't help but click on. And then once you've clicked on one of them, the floodgates open and YouTube knows you can be tempted into this case. And then it floods your recommendations with it endlessly. And there are so many outrageous uh, moments in this trial that you get inevitably pulled into it. And I know that Nina ended up watching some of it. I have watched it. Helen was into it from the get-go because this is right up Helen's street. I've watched it since the right? very beginning. In fact, I have to say, I 
followed the coverage on the last case and I had a certain perspective on that. Let's just see. I bet you can guess what it was. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. My mother has been obsessively watching has it. She? She's a psychotherapist. So what did she say about she comes it? home after work. Yeah. She's worked all day. Usually she will not watch film. Yeah. That uh, uh, are remind her of work because she finds that to be just too much, but she can't stop watching the trial. Uh, she thinks uh, Amber Heard is definitely lying about a lot of things. Uh, at, that Amber Heard's behavior is not consistent with the behavior of abuse victims. Uh, that's, that's what she thinks. She says, of course, Johnny Depp isn't innocent either. It takes two to tango. But Amber Heard is definitely not telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help her god it is it was amazing um to watch the testimony it was very interesting to listen to the dynamics of speech and the way it was delivered it was really interesting but obviously i mean one of the um forensic psychologists has claimed that she assessed amber to have bpd and hpd and BPD relationships make for very, very, very thrilling relationships that a lot of people really enjoy and get off on. Uh, and they do. Obviously, it does take two to tango and the person potentially doesn't have BPD. They, often they can involve a lot of alcohol, a lot of fights, a lot of drama, a lot of passion, a lot of intensity. So, yes, and that's not that's not that's nothing criminal about that. But there are things that are criminal, like. Um, lying on the stand right I mean, that's technically illegal uh you hardly ever get anybody persecuted for perjury anymore in this country it you know it used to be a huge thing i mean nixon got alger hiss on perjury back in the day but these days in the states you never get anybody just on perjury anymore uh, it's it's the norms have totally shifted on it and it undermines the whole legal yeah, system totally. it has but uh, it has uh, it's there was something else I wanted to say. Uh, there was some other. Oh, this. Yeah, that the kind of the Hunter S. Thompson fantasy that you can make your life extremely complicated and difficult mm -hmm. in your day to day with your relationships with substances, with your relationships with uh, other people, and that that won't stop you from doing great work. That is the fantasy of the of the rum diary, because Johnny Depp, you know, after all of this boozing and, and ridiculousness, goes back to New York and just has a career and he's fine. And if anything, the LSD you know, opened up his ability to be creative and to write and nothing, nothing at all bad happens to Johnny Depp because of all of this. It all is to his ultimate benefit to have uh, had these experiences. And this is the kind of the fantasy that you can just, um, and in some ways, it's kind of similar to the Stoic fantasy, although the Stoic mm -hmm. fantasy is kind of opposite. And this is the, the similarity between the Epicurean and the Stoic, or the Hedonist and the Stoic, where both the Hedonist and the Stoic think that you can have uh, a kind of life that is in various ways out of control. And yet, through personal virtue or personal ability or talent, you can control it. Uh, I'm not going to accuse this of Epicurus. Epicurus was more sophisticated in this critique. But the kind of vulgar hedonist, you know, argues that, you know, just do what's pleasurable and it'll be fine. You'll, you'll be fine. You can, you know, just because you have this one pleasure doesn't mean it's going to interfere with your ability to do other things. Uh, you know, the vulgar hedonist who thinks about experiences just on their immediate pleasure consequences and not in a wider kind of way. Epicurus, to his credit, said that you should garden because gardening is a sustainable pleasure, not the kind of pleasure that will ruin your life like, like drinking. Uh, Epicurus would not endorse this. But there's a certain kind of vulgar hedonism that's popular now where you just pretend that all you really get is, are the immediate consequences of the experience that are clear and obvious and easy to quantify or easy to uh, render concrete. So if you drink a bunch, yeah, you'll have fun. It'll be a fun night out. Maybe there will be a hangover, but it'll be worth it for the fun. And none of the larger consequences yeah. of it can figure in because those aren't certain. Those aren't empirically guaranteed, right? Like what I was saying about drunk driving, it's not empirically guaranteed that you'll kill anybody. So just don't factor that in. You know, you'll probably get away with it. It'll probably be fine, right? 
this is the kind of a vulgar, stupid hedonism. And then on the Stoic side, you have this, uh, even if your whole society is falling apart, if you have enough virtue, you can withstand <laughs> all of the pressure to uh, break mm -hmm. and to make mistakes just by being good enough. You just have to will your way to being good enough through uh, you know, personal uh, development of the virtues. And, and that, in some ways, is similar to the, this idea that you can just binge drink mm -hmm. and somehow still be a great writer but these are two and write wonderful novels and make the, the next Great Gatsby, which was Hunter Thompson's fantasy, yeah. it was to make a novel that would be better than the Great Gatsby, and, which uh, he, I don't think ever succeeded in doing, but many of his novels borrow work. heavily. Yeah, he borrows these tropes from yeah. the Great Gatsby in, in this attempt to, in some way, mimic it or or outdo it but this is it and these are both apolitical stances right you know and they are again talking about like the discernment of the left-wing philosophical position is dialectic and is dependent on situation so an absolutist belief that you can just will your way out of anything well try that love and you'll be completely shocked at how shit that is a solution um but also this self-destructive hedonism and that hedonistic thing i think actually is what capitalism demands of us so you know the critique the really annoying critique of capitalism that you get and actually we just had our um what do they call it the start of that state thing where the queen the queen's speeches in the uk i can't remember what it's called but charles replaced the queen because the queen's you know very old now whatever and you have everybody on Twitter going off on one about how... So Britain, terrible like, econo e economic situation at the moment. Absolutely dire. Like one in seven adults can't afford to eat every day at the moment. It's disgustingly bad. But then there's sort of this, oh, but look at this uh, fail son, George, uh, Charles, giving us a lecture when he's sitting on a throne and he's his family has X hundred millions. It's like, love, this is the least of your problems, okay? So people critique capitalism often, as we said, with, with, with uh, former iterations, precisely because it does nothing and it's a way to um, cathartically busy yourself while Rome is burning. So um, there's a sort of thing, you know, like, you know, the super tramp, logical song thing as if you know logic is too logical oh i don't like going to school yeah well i mean schools and institutions are all shit anyway but so that, you know, i agree it's a certain, but it's much more complicated than this unfortunately unfortunately capitalism wants us to believe that there is freedom in sacrifice we think sacrifice only looks like labor there is sacrifice all around and ways to um destroy ourselves for the benefit of the market part of the reason why we have so much inequality now is because labor is done in ways that are sacrificial but don't look like labor so for instance every time we post something on instagram that is generating value that is sacrificed in the past for tech billionaires and we are not getting a share of it there's all sorts of self-sacrificial um destructiveness that if we had a greater grasp on the reality of material reality, on what we need to live well, we might also accept less of what is being sold to us, you know, in this sort of part of your life away, when actually meeting reality where it is, having reasonable assessments of what makes life livable for people can help us to say no in unity at a given point, say no to the fact that it costs literally more than 100% of the average income in London to live there when it should cost 25%. You say no to the fantasy. Um, and there is, there is like waste uh, is often a good thing. Excess is a good thing and excess relates to lack and this is this dynamic this play of lack and excess that makes life worth living but there are certain pure self-sacrificial um dynamics that we don't recognize that are of benefit to the market and not to us mm. on this point about you know capitalism and the bourgeoisie kind of fighting the ghosts of the past mm -hmm to distract from 
their own political failures, you know, the point about going after Prince Charles to distract from the fact that the economy doesn't work. I recently saw in the Atlantic a piece just kind of uh, uh, slagging off all of the people who have any kind of uh, nostalgia for anything really that's that's pre-modern uh, on the basis that medieval peasants had it really bad. Yeah, this I, I've noticed this turn recently where the, the kind of liberal theorists will go, well, the medieval peasants, their lives really sucked, and therefore you can't like anything about any kind of pre-capitalist society because the peasants had it really bad. Uh, and anyone who thinks that they like any kind of pre-capitalist society is surely just ignorant of how bad it was to be a peasant or to be a slave in antiquity. Uh, and on the basis of the badness of the life of the slave or the badness of the peasant, you can't even seriously engage with any of the political concepts that come out of all of that. And it becomes a way of, of, of preventing any form of resistance to capitalism, which in any way distances itself from liberalism. Because if, if liberalism owns all of the forms of resistance to capitalism, then they instead become ways of accelerating the project instead of actually confronting it. Uh, so, if, for instance, we have the kind of the two species of libertarianism, uh, you know, uh, kind of libertarian socialism and uh, libertarian capitalism, anarcho-capitalism, right-wing libertarianism, and they both accelerate this focus on the individual, which is characteristic of capitalism and of liberalism, uh, but do it nominally in the name of critiquing the existing system either arguing that this isn't true capitalism, as the right does, or arguing that uh, you know, capitalism needs to be replaced by uh, something called socialism, which is actually an accelerated form of, of existing capitalist society, uh, as, as the left anarchists typically do. Uh, th this kind of move prevents any kind of meaningful engagement, because to actually get it, what is valuable outside of instrumental capitalist reason to get at what's valuable outside of just generating uh, capital. You have to engage with value sets that are outside of the context of modern capitalist liberal society, right? What, once you've engaged with those values, that doesn't mean that you have to transplant the institutions or structures of ancient or medieval societies unrevised and unreflected upon into modernity, but you have to find these other values that are papered over and ignored and uh, trampled upon by capitalism if you want to create a new form of society which in some way interfaces with anything other than the, the rapacious structural incentives of, of capitalism. And by boxing all of that out and framing all of that as uh, you know, pretending that peasants had, had better lives than contemporary workers or pretending that peasants had everything great and everything wonderful. Uh, these are thought-terminating yeah. strategies. Mm -hmm. We're back at uh, the concrete thinking of, the, you know, of this, this infantile logic, which is really so destructive. And this is this, we, we're facing this so much, this infantile, you know, concrete thinking where this is this this is this this is this but a doesn't equal a i mean it, logically there is always a division in everything um so you never whether when you affirm something you never wholeheartedly affirm it in the first place you know but to throw everything out is just totalitarian just as it is to yeah, fit, yeah. I'm increasingly just pitching myself as a Marxist Platonist just to fuck with people mm -hmm. uh, because people treat these things as if they can't have anything to do with each other. Yeah, I know. I have to say that sometimes how I um, articulate things, I take two very opposite things and I say I'm this and I'm this. <laughs> uh, it's funny, we had this, um, uh, a friend of ours is a, a BBC Radio 4, Radio 4 journalist and we had some drinks at a friend's house. People in Belfast tend to get very shouty when they discuss politics. And we had a very shouty debate where this guy is very, very liberal, this um, BBC journalist. And myself, two authors and another filmmaker are very much more Marxist, let's just say. And um, it got to the stage where this journalist said, 
I think to me in particular, that he did not understand my position, that I didn't make any sense. He just didn't, he just had no idea. It's basically, he, there were certain issues where two of our friends are quite hard, well, they're not hardline on, but they have a, a, a certain stance on issues related to gender. But me and somebody else are very dialectical in our approach and are very pro something's on the side of liberalism, but also have a dialectical approach. So a lot of what we say doesn't fit into that approach. And he just couldn't, under, he was just like, but he couldn't refute what we were saying because it logically holds. But he has to, well, like, you're, yeah. you're not on the, the grid. Like people, I, I always call this the horizon problem. If you're too far away from somebody politically, and they haven't been exposed to the kind of political theory education which would allow them to see further away from themselves, uh, it all just starts to look the same. Horseshoe theory runs on this. Mm -hmm. Once you get far enough from liberal centrism, it's all the same thing, right? And the liberal centrist has been exposed to such a tiny slice of political theory that everything looks the same very quickly. Now, if you think about horseshoe theory, it, it the horseshoe comes around, right, in a semicircle, mm -hmm. Right. And it comes around because that's as far away as as the liberal centrists can see from their position, uh, you know, because they're sitting in the center of the horseshoe and they can only see that far away. That's why it looks like a horseshoe. Uh, this is also a problem when you are, uh, you know, not even just that you don't have a position that uh, is close enough for them to see it, but the way that you're approaching the issue is fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really engage with their conceptual map. Say you have someone who thinks that all of political, all political positions can be put on that political compass, which does your know, authoritarian, libertarian, left, right, yeah. right? But that's such a, a narrow compass because it's a compass designed mainly to discuss very contemporary political issues. And it's mainly a kind of cultural, social issue axis. And the, all of the questions that they ask on that are based around what kinds of cultural issues are salient in a late 20th century, early 21st century American context. And then a left-right axis, axis, which, you know, treats as very left-wing, you know, anything, anybody who wants the state to own anything uh, and very right-wing anybody who doesn't. I just, uh, I have to say, it, in this, all there is this to contemporary it. discourse, what, what people are calling the left makes me just endlessly lull and people just do it like everywhere they say things the left wing which are completely reactionary right wing and it is unbelievable unbelievable it must annoy you very much because i mean i'm not even well, i'm doing even not trained it, in it always theory. works through through these these dichotomies or these duopolies so if you want people to think that you are giving them a complicated political discussion you say, oh, well, it, you're trying to understand X. Well, there are two different ways to understand that, right? And so two is more than one. So it sounds like you're adding complexity. People do it with like positive and negative mm -hmm. liberty. They do it with equality and equity. They do it with uh, you know, a delegate and trustee representation, right? There are two ways to understand this. Now, if you previously hadn't really thought about it, it sounds like a lot. And with the political compass, it's are you on the left-right axis or the authoritarian-libertarian axis? I bet you didn't realize there was a second axis, did you? And if that actually sounds like, you know, three deep, five me, then, uh, you know, then you get taken along for this ride. But of course, the reality is every term can be defined and understood in so many ways that there are so many different uh, ways of breaking, it, breaking up definitions or understandings of the term. So, for instance, you know, Quentin Skinner has you know, three different families of concepts of liberty. If you go into like Raymond Goyce's work, he comes up with you know, four different ones that are just within, say, or compatible with, say, positive liberty on, on the Isaiah Berlin axis. Uh, so you can not only talk about you know, different conceptions of liberty, you can talk about different ways of dividing up mm -hmm. conceptions of liberty, different people's theories of how to divide up conceptions of liberty. And each of those conceptions is politically loaded, uh, let alone you know, the one conception you've been given is the only conception. Most students, they get Isaiah Berlin or they get Benjamin Constant, they get a, a, a diopoly and they think that, oh, now they have something. Uh, but they not only do they not have very much at all, not only is there more than just two ways to understand liberty, there's more than one way to break liberty into two or three types. So 
But this is how our education system works. In the United States, especially, it's all about definitions. You go through the textbook, you you have a bunch of definitions, and then when you have an exam, it's identities. A a U.S. social science exam usually has this little identities section where you're given these terms and you're supposed to give little definitions of them, and they're supposed to be close enough or similar enough to the textbook definition that you've memorized. And just that way of, of learning... Uh, teaches you that that terms have specific definitions that an authority can give to you. Uh, and once you think like that, you know, then all that really matters is determining who has the authority to define. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's why so many people who just have bachelor's degrees in the States get like so into Fauci or so into Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's this is the person who has the authority to define terms. This is the person who's very qualified as a legal theorist or very qualified as a scientist who comes from this epistemological background that gives them the authority to tell me what the words mean. Uh, yeah, that's not thinking. But if you treat definitions like they're knowledge that you either have or you don't have rather than contested phenomena, then you can't think. And this is the, the way that we concretize complex things and serve them up to undergraduates and give them a facsimile of education for the purpose of regimenting them. And people think, oh, high school is about regimentation and undergrad is about expanding your mind. But you, too many people go to undergrad for undergrad to be about expanding your mind. Undergrad is now about regimentation that is concealed mm-hmm. oh, yes. university, more heavily. University discourse, which Lacan is like sort of just really disguising the master's discourse. Right. And, and, you know, so many people go up all the way through the university system in the States and they don't really get very much of this complexity or they get, again, facsimiles of complexity, the grad school complexity in social science the in thing the is States though, is often a kind of facsimile of it. Oh, you know, I have been really shocked at, like, people who have grad, graduate degrees in the States. If you talk to them about, like, um, let's say, critical theory, they haven't read any of the canonical critical theory, but they're very well versed in these secondary, tertiary, gender, whatever. And then they'll say yeah. the critical theory, this person from the Frankfurt School said this, but it's like, no, that's not that's not accurate at all. The next level higher after you've, you know, so in undergrad, you get your, you know, positive and negative liberty bullshit. The next level above that is everything is constructed. Everything is constructed and nothing is real. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of just vulgar postmodernism, right, that you get at the next level. Mm -hmm. A kind of unsophisticated, whoa, like everything's fake, man, Foucault, Nietzsche thing. That's what you're offered at the master's level, really. Uh, Yeah. And and most people will will think that that's deep and, and stop there. But, the thing but you know, is, it's really like if you think about Aristotle and Aristotle's process for how you acquire wisdom, right? First, you're taught a set of habits. Then you get to the point where you can question the habits, right? And then if you're stupid, you just throw all the habits out and you fall into a life that's a total mess, right? Like you Hunter S. Thompson it. If, you're, if you aren't able to properly manage that moment where you question the habits, it all just unravels. Uh, but ideally, after you question the habits, you learn why the habits were the way that they were, right? So some people, having learned why the habits are were the way that they were, they just adopt a conservative stance and then become defenders of the habits that they were originally taught. But the level above that yes, is to revise yeah. the habits and dialectically change yeah, exactly. them. So it's kind of four levels. One level where you don't question the... Ha- well, some people are never taught the habits. Then you have the people who are taught the habits and don't question them. Then you have the people who question the habits but are unable to understand them. The people who understand the habits and then, to them. and then revert to them. And then the people who actually get sufficiently wise yeah. that they can engage constructively this is the difference with between habit formation. The rebel and the reactionary. The rebel constantly revolves around the same dialectical whatever. And they are completely, they're not part of the reaction. So you have these people who question and then just become the reactionary to the thing that confirms the, the thing in the first place. Um yeah, and if, anyway, but the other thing that we obviously yeah. haven't talked Levin, about. Level one is the lumpen proletarian mm-hmm. who has you know, never received the basic education. Level two is you know, the kind of uh, bachelor's degree mode. Level three is the master's degree question everything mode. Level four is the kind of, uh, you know, I think, kind of Christopher Lash kind of response mm-hmm. to that. And then level five is you know, actually thinking. <laughs> I know, and you get this right now. I have to say, 
And I think the substance in a lot of stuff, because a lot of stuff that maybe was, you had the Bernie movement and then you had the sort of critique um, phase, where the disillusionment phase, where a lot of people who seem to be saying something of substance, and again, this is like the maybe referring to Hunter S. Thompson thing, it's just pure nihilism. And there's nothing there. And you get show after show after show after show where it's just nothing. And at the end of the day, you have to put your man pants on and live. And live bearing in mind contradiction. The one thing is, there's two things I just want to say before we finish. Is number one, of course, part of the Hunter S. Thompson fantasy was able to be sustained in the 60s because of different economic circumstances. That's just not possible now. (laughs) Um, um, Number two is that... um, but I can't remember what I was going to say. Maybe it'll come back to me on the B side. Um, mm. That is, it's very, the thing, okay, yeah, two things. Contradiction bites. So when you try to repress contradiction by either grabbing hold of a system, rejecting a system, being a hedonist, being a nihilist, being a stoic, it bites. The more repressed the contradiction is, there's something that's happening very exciting on the ground where I am, where the contradiction has bitten well and truly and this shit show of repression is coming back to bite. And it has all fallen, follow, followed the trajectory of logic fully over the last several years. There has had to be bullying and abuse to anybody who raises their voice dialectically and points out the contradictions of the system. And it is all eroding. So we can say it's very difficult to live in this this. Um, openness to contradiction when, as you were saying about the career of the individual journalist relies on sustaining the culture war. It's difficult, but in the long term, (laughs) it is truth. Or maybe all these newspapers will start to fail. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be fun, wouldn't it? Anyway, we've we've gone on for long enough. We've, we've, uh, yeah, we're over the hour, so... We've got to wrap up. We're going to go do the B-side now. I think it's going to be lots of fun. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.